There we go. It's alive. All right. Let's read God's word. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then down in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in its own, his own order... Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And this is God's word. He has spoken to us today in love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, uh, show us Jesus this morning, uh, that we might know him, we might know the power of his resurrection, and the joy and, and the freedom, uh, and all the glorious implications of what that means. So may we leave here rejoicing in your grace, immovable, confident, unshaken by what life has thrown at us, because we have a hope that no amount of suffering can take away, because Christ is alive. Help us believe and chase away our unbelief, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as I said, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. And right, Paul does a couple things here for us. He first lays out the historical events. Here's what happened. Right? But he also shows the magnificent theological implications. Um, in other words, if you're saying, why should I care that Jesus is alive here 2,000 years later? Uh, he, he starts to talk about that. And then at the end of the chapter, he talks about the powerful effect the resurrection ought to have, the confidence we can have when we face death. And so this morning, we're not going to go through the whole chapter, but let's ask, let's ask three questions. What happened on the first Easter weekend? Why should we care? And then what effect ought the resurrection to have on us? So we'll keep it simple. So what happened? Right? If you're looking at verses 3 through 6, 
Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance of what I received. And so in other words, here, here is Paul's elevator speech. You know what I mean by that? You've got, you're in an elevator and you've got a minute or two to explain what Christianity, what Christianity is about before you get to the next floor, right? And they say, why are you a Christian? What is it about? What are you going to say, right? Apart from your whole life flashing before your eyes, you know, do you have something concrete to say, right? Are you going to say it's about being good and being, doing, being as loving a neighbor as possible, right? Are you going to say, well, I'm, I admire Jesus as a good teacher. Or maybe you say, I, I really, my, my church community does a lot of good for the neighborhood and that they're a really loving community. You know, it's, it's missing out what Paul calls a, what is of first importance, right? Here's what Christians have told each other and their neighbors within months of the resurrection, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day, also according to the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, and that he appeared to all these witnesses, specifically the apostles and then 500 others at one time. And, right? and so here's the point. This is of first importance. right? So uh, you guys remember doing order of operations in math in like fifth, is that fifth grade, fourth grade, something like that? Um, Right? If, you, if, you don't, if you do multiplication in the wrong order when you're in, you know, you got addition, subtraction, multiplication, you've got parentheses, you've got to do it in the right order to get the right answer. Right? Paul's saying, here's what you do first. Start with the resurrection. Right? This is the foundation for the whole Christian faith. And as he said, if it is not true, then everything we do is empty, meaningless, uh, and Christians ought to be pitied, not celebrated. So if you want to know why Christians at times make things so black and white, I will say things like, there absolutely is a God who made all things. Uh, There is a heaven and hell. Uh, Like Jesus said, I am the only way to the Father. And he lays out that there is a right and wrong way to live, that morality matters. Uh, If you want to know why Christians grieve with hope, it's all grounded, right? You got to do the order of operations, right? You have to start with the resurrection and then connect the dots to all these other things, right? So in our secular age, people aren't going to ask about the resurrection first, right? They're going to ask, what does your church believe about human sexuality? What what does your church believe about who you should vote for? You You can just run down a list of whatever cultural hot button issue that causes, causes people to look at a church, Bible-believing church funny. Now, the, the question to respond with is, is what Paul says. This is of first importance. Right? All those things are really good questions to have, and those are good, important conversations to have. But do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Right? Did, did it actually happen? Is it true? Because right? if it's not true then who cares what Christians think, right? Because then it's just based on uh, something that didn't happen. Right? And so, you know, if you're more skeptical, you have skeptical friends who love taking shots at the church, I mean, why would you attack Christian morality when Paul is basically saying, I am challenging you to pull the rug out from, out from under every Christian, 
If Christ did not raise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. Right? Or maybe you say, well, I don't like the Old Testament. Okay. Well, or maybe you don't understand why Christians still quote it and use it. Well, was Jesus raised from the dead? As promised by those same Old Testament scriptures. That's the question of first importance. That's, that's the claim that Paul is making. Uh, that, that this thing that we're celebrating this morning is not our personal preference. Um, it's not something we've chosen like you, some people choose, I think, foolishly to, to root for the Yankees. Sorry, Yankees fans. <laughs> I'm a Phillies fan. <laughs> Still bitter about last year. Right. No, what Paul is saying is this thing happened and it has cosmic implications for every human being who has ever lived. Right? It's, it's a historical event. It's something that can be uh, historically verified. Right? So scholars, Bible scholars have noticed, both Christian and non-Christian, right? that Paul says, I delivered to you what I first received. And, he, and then he goes into the, the, the creed there. Right? So basically what happened is that the early church, within months after, the, after Jesus rose from the dead, they said, how are you going to teach and train people who can't read what happened? Right? And so they gave them this, this creed, this, this saying, here's what you can memorize and here's what you're going to tell others. Here's what happened. So if you ask Paul, you ask Peter, you ask ordinary Christians in the first churches, what is it you believe? They would say the same thing we do. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he rose from the dead according to our scriptures, and that he appeared to all these witnesses. It's basically saying, here's what the other eyewitnesses are. Here's who they are. Go, go talk to them. I mean, obviously we can't, but that's, that's how it worked back then. You got Cephas, you go find one of the apostles. You got James, the brother of Jesus, in verse 7. Right? James, Jesus' brother, worshipped Jesus as God. Right? I don't know if you have a brother that, that likes to think he's God. <laughs> we all have stories that prove otherwise. It's an astounding testimony that a brother would say, yeah, he is my creator who came for me in the flesh. And then you have 500 other brothers that Jesus appeared to, more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive. And otherwise, in other words, you can go find them. You can trace it. It's, it's historically verifiable. It, there's, there's testimony. And, and today historians can trace and say this creed was going around at least as early as two or three years after Jesus rose from the dead. But even more recently, a guy like J.G. Dunn would say something like, you can be entirely confident that this creed was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death and resurrection. In other words, Jesus rose from the dead, and they said, we have to account for this. They had to come up with a whole discipleship program. <laughs> right? And they started with the creed. See, the church is built on this news that Jesus historically, physically, and bodily rose from the dead and then dares you to prove it false. And because these events are being testified so early, it's too early to be a legend, it's too early to be a myth. They're not claiming that this is a metaphor, a, a warm and fuzzy feeling that you get, 
or that they all had the same vision and there was this mystical, spiritual thing. They're saying, we saw Jesus alive. And when you read in the Gospel of John, Jesus appears to his friends, and then he goes and eats fish to prove he's not a ghost, that they're not hallucinating. Right? I mean, if you want to look at the best arguments for why Jesus is alive, I've got some short books, really short books, that'll get you started if you're interested. But this is the first point. What happened? Jesus, Jesus' heart stopped on Friday, and then blood started pumping through his veins on Sunday morning on the third day because of God's power. And so if you're not a Christian, right, start here. If you know friends who aren't Christians, tell them to start here. Start with what happened. All right, and, and Christian, if you're drowning in guilt, if you're feeling like you're languishing, wondering what you're doing, or you don't belong here, or you're feeling hopeless, down in despair, right? This is too is of first importance to you. <laughs> Say, Jesus physically rose from the dead. What does that mean for me? And go back through the story. Right? Come back to first things. Jesus is alive. Now, why should we care? Right? If because the resurrection is historically verifiable, it's true, it's something that happened, uh, what did this accomplish? And that's the rest of the chapter, but I'm going to zoom in here on verses 12 to 26. Right? Because here's what's happening. In the Corinthian church, these are new Christians, they had skeptics. And they were saying, there's no such thing as a bodily resurrection from the dead. Sounded to them, I assume, it sounded too mythical, too fantastical. It sounded too, maybe too Greco-Roman, right? Or for all these other religions that have these kind of stories are saying, no, resurrection from the dead is impossible. And Paul says, the moment you get rid of that reality, everything else crumbles. And so let's look at the implications here. First, in, in verse 14, it, the resurrection of Jesus gives power to preaching in faith. Right in verse 14, if, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. See, if Jesus isn't alive, Paul spent his whole life testifying and telling lies about God. Right? I mean, he's saying, my, my testimony is that God raised Jesus from the dead, and because he raised Jesus from the dead, that's telling you something that is true of God always and historically in time. <laughs> it's telling you something about God that he would care enough to raise Jesus from the dead for us. Right? And so you think about preaching and what, what, we're do, what we do every week as a church on Sunday. If Jesus isn't alive, who cares what the preacher has to say? Church wouldn't be any different than a TED Talk. Right? Maybe a, a mini concert beforehand. Now, what, what makes Christian preaching Christian is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because any religion can tell you to love your neighbors yourself, to be less selfish, to live by the golden rule, to fight your, your, your tendency to make yourself the center of the universe. Right? You can find talks on the internet. You can find uh, a good counselor who will talk to you through those things. But what gives Christian preaching power it's the fact that Jesus is alive, which assumes that Jesus also died for our sins. 
Right? If Jesus isn't alive, then preaching would be vain. It's, it's empty. It's useless. It'd be as effective at communicating as Charlie Brown's teacher. Right? You know that sound, wah, 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 wah. Because right? if it was articulate or not, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but then our faith would be in vain because what is God actually like? We don't know for sure. We don't have historical, historically verifiable uh, events to look at. Right? If God raised Jesus from the dead, it's telling you that God cares about this world. Because if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then death is still our enemy. There would still be very real guilt and shame that every human being is walking around with. And if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, we wouldn't have evidence that God is actually for us. Go read Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes says, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. This is chapter 4. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. That's life without resurrection of Jesus. No concrete evidence of God actually moving towards human beings in their trouble. In seminary, one of our, our friends... He, he was rooming with a Christian, but he, he was a Muslim from Morocco. And so it just, just allowed us to engage in conversation with, with Muslims and, and talk about the Quran and what's different and what's similar. And, and he would tell me, right, Allah is merciful. And so the question is, is how do you know? How do you know right now that he's going to forgive your sins as you try really, really hard to hope that he will before you die? What, what the resurrection of Christ is telling you is that God's mercy uh, is evidence, is evident in the resurrection, right? If Jesus is alive, God is merciful because he forgives sins. Now, Paul says, faith is empty without substance. Now, in the empty tomb, the argument of the Bible is that God is for us in ways that, we, that are greater than our imagination, So, for example, in Romans 4, God raised Jesus from the dead for our justification. That was our assurance of pardon this morning. In other words, it was God's plan to not just forgive us through Jesus' perfect life, through Jesus being pierced for our transgressions. It was his plan to justify us. And justification is more than just forgiving debts. It's, It's giving you all of the wealth and resources that Jesus has. Right? If, if forgiveness is you're now at ground zero, you're no longer in debt, justification is Jesus has deposited all of what he has into your account, his perfect life. And to be a Christian is to be still selfish in this body and justified, treated as if you've never sinned, as if you've lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. And so, for the resurrection, for the Christian, the fact that there's an empty tomb, that becomes your receipt. That becomes the proof that God bought you, body and soul, through his blood. It's, it's your receipt that God loves you and cares for you and intervenes and forgives your sin. Right? It's proof that God isn't mad at you, even though he has every 
every reason to be for the harm we've caused. Now, if Jesus isn't alive, faith is vain. It's empty. Uh, the resurrection gives us then power over our guilt and our anxiety. Right? If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and Paul says you're still in your sins. <laughs> right? So if you restate that positively, if Christ is raised from the dead, then your faith has power, and you no longer stand condemned. You're not in your sins anymore. Justice smiles and asks no more. Right. I mean, look around. Listen to people. Every human being, just by existing in this world, is plagued by the anxiety and guilt of not being enough. Not being good enough, of wishing I was better, hating our failures. Um, right? And that, that shame of regret tends to tag team with specific memories of things that we would rather not talk about that cause guilt. Now, if you don't have the resurrection of Jesus giving you a receipt, a proof of God's grace and mercy, you have to deal with your guilt and anxiety and shame by yourself. Right? In other words, what it sets you up to do is you're stuck with a very fragile identity aren't we? Because you're, you're stuck needing others to say you're okay, to celebrate you, and when people don't affirm you, you'll be angry and wounded. And it just becomes really easy to lash out because it's setting you up to have thin skin. Because right? what happens is, I, I mean, I've experienced this, right? You get weighed down by a combination of wanting to be liked and not feeling good enough. And when someone says, I don't like you or I don't celebrate your decisions, you just get angry and say, how dare you? Because you've set yourself up as God. And no one can bear the weight of justifying themselves. And if you don't believe that's true, just read Twitter. <laughs> right? Highly sensitive. You know, if, if Jesus isn't alive, you'll be stuck trying to forgive yourself or, or trying to do enough good to wipe out the red in your ledger, but if you're doing good just to make yourself feel better, is that actually good? Are you just using the poor and the needy and the broken to make yourself feel better? Now, the argument of Paul here is Christ is alive, and because he is alive, all who trust in him are no longer in their sins. That the, the testimony of the scriptures, Isaiah 53, that we all like sheep have gone astray. Every single one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on his suffering servant, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. It's the death of Christ in our place. But at the end of Isaiah 53, the same servant, it says he's going to, after death somehow, is going to prolong his days after being cut off from the land of the living. And then it says, he shall see and be satisfied because by his work, the many will be accounted righteous. That Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, that this Old Testament scripture is pointing to, he's going to raise, be raised from the dead and see the effects of his work and be satisfied. <laughs> you know, what, I did it, what I did was worth it because of the benefits for them. They will be accounted righteous, treated as perfect, even though they're not. 
accounted as if they've never sinned, never had a selfish thought, despite the mountains of evidence that say otherwise. The resurrection helps us deal with guilt and anxiety. And lastly, the resurrection gives powerful hope, hope for suffering. If Christ is not raised, says Paul, then all who professed faith in Jesus just died. The lights went out, destroyed by death, the end. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes, a future no different than, than the animals. And so Paul says, if in Christ our hope is only for this life, Christians ought to be pitied. Why? Well, the hope the gospel gives that because Christ is alive, you have a hope that nothing in this life can take away. You have hope of an eternal life and a renewed creation. You have the power to, to taunt death, as Paul does later in this chapter, to say, death, where is your sting? This hurts, but you're defeated. One example is Christians in Madagascar in the 1800s, right? They're being persecuted for their faith. Uh, they're, they're standing up and saying, Jesus is alive, and they, they're, they're, they're so overjoyed that there's life after death. Uh, new heavens, new earth, new bodies. Sorrow and, and sighing will flee. And, and as they are going to their death, right, some of them were being wrapped up into these uh, mats and just being rolled off a cliff to die on the rocks below. As they're walking to their known death, they were singing hymns, celebrating the resurrection because they knew they had it made. To live is Christ and to die is gain. See, the resurrection gives concrete hope now because we know that we know the end of the story and if it's only hope for right now then we've been scammed now paul says in fact christ has been raised and so what is he claiming here and here's why this is this is why this is hope for you and i Uh, he uses an image called first fruits and so paul is a He's a Jewish uh, rabbi, and he's been taught, he knows the Old Testament scriptures, and he's using this Old Testament idea that the first fruits, the very beginning of the harvest, right? If you, the first fruits are the beginning of a whole event, right? When, when you get your first corn of the season, you know more corn is coming. Right? And I think part of the confusion for the church in Corinth was, you know, you read the Old Testament, you don't come up with a specific time for a Messiah to rise from the dead before everyone else. It looked like it was God made the world, the fall happened. One day God's going to right everything that is wrong, and on that day everyone will be raised from the dead to, to judgment and to everlasting life. And what the Christian story does is says, no, that happened right in the middle of the history. Jesus is the first fruits of what's to come. It's that what happened to Jesus will happen for every Christian. God will raise him from the dead just as the first corn of the season points to, the, to more coming. Right? So Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first one to rise, but because he is alive, that's a guarantee that it's the beginning of an event that when Jesus returns, 
Everyone will be raised from the dead, either to everlasting life or everlasting rejection. And even more powerful, in the Old Testament, do you know when the festival of first fruits was? Right? The Jews, this was one of the commands in Leviticus. They were called to bring the first fruits of their harvest to God, to the temple, and wave it and give it to God and say thank you. It was on Easter Sunday, the day after Passover, the day after the Sabbath, the day that Christ was raised. The festival of the first fruits was fulfilled by Christ being raised as the beginning of a whole harvest. Christians being raised at the end. So Jesus was first, but more is coming. Right? Jesus' resurrection was God's eschatological beachhead. So there's, there's a nerd word for you. Right? It's, it's the moment when God's future new creation invaded this decaying, dying world. Right? And a new beginning dawned. Light invaded the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Right? If you believe that, that changes everything. It changes how you see life now, and it changes how you see your death. Right? Because what's the image of death that Paul uses? Jesus is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For the Christian... Death is nothing more than a nap, right? Where you're laid into the ground, waiting for Jesus to return to wake you up as he raises your new glorified body. I mean, that is a bold claim to be at a funeral and say they're just sleeping because death makes a scream. This is not how the world ought to be, right? Jesus in, had in a, a moment in his life where he got off a boat and, and a guy named Jairus comes running to him desperate because his 12-year-old daughter is dying. And he says, come and lay your hands on her so that she can be made well and live. And so Jesus hops on the ambulance, so to speak, and he begins to make his way with a crowd to Jairus' house to, to save her daughter, or to save his daughter. And so you can imagine it's everyone's shock when the ambulance driver slams on the brakes and stops, right? what happens is Jesus stops and cries out, who touched me, while surrounded by hundreds of people. And what happened is there's this woman who had a bleeding disorder for 12 years that was bleeding her and her bank account dried. The doctors haven't been able to help her. She touched the corner of Jesus' garment and was healed. This is in Mark chapter 5. And so Jesus stops to talk to her so that she realizes that, no, it was my faith in Christ that helped me, not some kind of supernatural superstition. But if you're a parent watching Jesus just stand there in conversation while you know the clock is ticking and the doctor is doing nothing to save your child, right, you'd be... I mean, you'd be horrified, anxious, angry, I mean, fill in all the emotions. And it's during this conversation when someone comes from Jairus' house and says, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. And that's when Jesus looks Jairus in the eye and says, don't be afraid. 
keep believing. Keep believing in the presence of death. While grief is threatening to swallow him and his faith whole. And so Jesus goes to Jairus' house, which is now a, a funeral. Jesus walks into the house and says, why are you making all that noise and weeping? She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Just sleeping. Right. And so what he does is he kicks out all the people, except for the family, and, sit, and, and some of the disciples, and goes into the room where, the, where this little girl is lying down. <clears throat> and he takes her by the hand and says, Talitha kumi. In Aramaic, right? It was so vivid, they're recording the original language. It's an eyewitness account. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Right? It's, it's an Aramaic term for what, what you would say, we would say to a little girl, sweetheart, sweetie. Right? It's, a, it's a tender term. And she immediately gets up and begins walking around, and Jesus says, feed her. She's hungry, as most 12-year-olds are. <laughs> Right? See, this is part of the testimony about Christ, that for the Christian who trusts in Christ, that Christ is alive, death is like taking a nap. And, and that Jesus will one day say to you with tenderness, Talitha kum. Right? Maybe not little girl to all the guys, but right? in a tender term, he's going to say, sweetie, it's time to wake up. And it's this majestic combination of power and tenderness you will not find anywhere else. Right? And so sleep became the metaphor to describe Christians and, and their death. They're just, they're just napping. Do you believe that? Now, Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is how you know he loves you. He experienced death for you so that you might have hope for the future. Here's our, our um, reflection says, right? Christ died for us because he cried for us. At the moment he raised Lazarus from the dead after weeping, right? That was the event that sealed his death when his enemies said, we're going to kill this guy. But it's that kind of tender, compassionate, related relatable compassion that he understands what it's like to be human and says, I hate the burden that death is for you, so I will take that upon myself, let myself be swallowed whole, so that I might rise and then raise you from the dead, and so when I see you face to face, I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eye. It's Revelation 21. He's going to say it's time to wake up into a world where sorrow and sighing have fled so, what effect should that have on you? Hope. Right. This, this thing happened. This is a real event. It's historically verifiable. Uh, it has great implications on how you live your life now, but it's hope for the future. So on with the story. Uh, right, last week, the, the funerals from the, the, the Nashville tra tragedy, uh, the Covenant School, uh, started to take place. And this is one of the stories that the minister told to a community of grieving people. 
right? You gotta understand this is the South, so everybody loves college football more than we do. Your grandmother down South loves football more than we do. Um, right? He says, one of the Scruggs boys, one of the pastor's kids, this is one of the, the brother of one of the little girls who was slain. And he loved to come up to the pastor and say, pastor, let's watch a replay of that Tennessee-Alabama game. Right, because last year, Tennessee beat Alabama for like the first time in 15 years. By three points, field goal at the buzzer. It was an epic game. Right. And you know, he says that that game has scary moments for Tennessee fans. But this little boy doesn't sweat the scary moments because he knows the end. Right. That, that, that life's scary moments, when you know how, how they end... They lose their power over you. See, that's, that's Paul's argument here. That's the testimony of the scripture. That Christian, because Christ is alive, you know the end of the story, which changes how you deal with life's scary moments now. That because Christ is alive, the first fruits of those who are raised from the dead, you know Death will be swallowed whole, suffering shall flee, tears shall be wiped away, and we're going to feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb and toast of Christ's love for us, remembering his death. We're being told this morning that, that death, suffering, and darkness are just a small and passing thing in comparison to the great power that is at work in us and for us. Right. So do, do you believe this thing happened? Is Jesus alive? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that forgives us. We thank you for your power that has worked for us by raising Christ from the dead. And I pray for us as a church that that would be our testimony, that, that we, we would be a people of the resurrection, that as we pray, we know Christ is seated at your right hand and he is praying for us and he is putting all things under his feet and one day he will even put death under, under his feet. It will be def defeated and destroyed, and we'll be able to say, death, where is your sting? But until death is gone, we, we need faith. And so I pray you would give us the faith to face whatever troubles you are leading us through and are holding us by the hand in, and that we know you are holding on to us because you promised that, Jesus, you will never leave nor forsake us until the very end of the age, because we know you're alive. So grow us in, the, in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.